here's the deal. If, if, if you're visiting with us, this is our last Sunday in this building. Our church has purchased, we've outgrown this building and we've purchased uh, another building, the old Carter Bank building at 75 North Mason Street. And Thursday night, we're having a dedication service there. And then next Sunday will be our first worship service there. So this is a good time for us to stop and to take stock and to remember our history and, and how we've gotten here and to think about our future together. And so I'm going to spend a few minutes here at the beginning walking through our history. And those of you who get anxious about such things, never fear. After a few minutes, we will, I'll turn to scripture and it'll all fit together. But, um, and, and if, if that's just too much for you, you can go ahead and be finding Titus. Then you can at least feel yourself finding things in scripture. Okay, so at, this is what I want to do. I want us to reflect on this, this thing. Our church, we are a Christian church and we are here for the glory of God and for the good of the city. That's been our mantra, our mission, our motto from the very beginning. We are here for the glory of God and for the good of this particular city. Now, think, let me, some of you, this is going to be just remembering, and some of you are going to hear this for the first time. So our beginning as a church goes back to October the 10th of 2010. It's really easy to remember, 10, 10 of 10. And after a year of discernment and incubating, on October the 10th of 20, 2010, a group of 12 adults and 10 children officially started the Church of the Incarnation. And we began in a living room of a house over on Campbell Street. And within a few months, we had outgrown that living room. And so at the beginning of 2011, we started worshiping in the old Madison Mortgages building that we rented. And that is the parking lot of Urban Exchange just across the street from Burger King. And now it's, I think, six parking spots. The building is not there anymore. And so we outgrew that building. And in the summer of 2012, we purchased this building. And if you have your worship guide and look on the front of it, that's what it looked like when we bought it. It was the old Parts Inc. building. Now, out of curiosity, is anybody here, did you ever um, go to that business? And does anybody have a memory of buying tires there or any milk, milk does? All right. So um, it was, that's what it looked like, by the way. And so... That metal pole right there from there back, the floor is about 18 inches deeper and there are big garage doors right here. And on the other side of that wall, the only remaining interior wall was a snake pit, basically. I'm not sure why they were breeding snakes, but um, there was like a marsh and snakes being bred back there. And so since that was going to be our children's area, we thought we should renovate. And so we raised about $300,000 and we renovated um, from that pole back two thirds of the building. The front of it still looked like the front of your worship guide. And we moved into that building at the beginning of this building at the beginning of 2013. The following year, 2014, we outgrew this building. And so we planted our first daughter church, the Church of the Lamb in Kieseltown. 
Within a year, we had outgrown our building again. So we did another big renovation, renovating the front of the building, making the sanctuary bigger, adding about 50 seats, fixing the HVAC, creating a foyer, and then designing the front so that it looks like it does now with the steeple and all of that kind of stuff. In 2016, we supported Bishop Andudu and his family as, as they launched Cush Anglican Church, an Arabic-speaking congregation that meets in our building on Sunday afternoons for primarily refugees from Sudan. In 2017, we helped plant another church, the Church of the Holy Cross in Crozet. In 2018, we outgrew our building again for the third time, and so we we. We couldn't keep peeling out churches, and so we, we started a second service. So that's when we went to two services in 2018. In 2019, we'd outgrown our building again. So on June the 17th of 2019, we purchased the Carter Bank building. In 2020, we planted another church, Restoration Anglican Church in Stanton, and we started Pox Day for Nuba a 501c3 focused on partnering with Cush and with Bishop Andudu um, to work in Sudan, which is one of the most war-ravaged places on the earth, uh, the Nuba Mountains. They've been in continual war for 37 years. Imagine what Ukraine is going through right now, 37 years of that. So there were no more roads. There was no more infrastructure. So because we were housing a refugee population, we leveraged our resources to form a 501c3 to gather lots of resources to work with that church, work with Andudu, and to rebuild what was destroyed by 37 years of war in the Nuba Mountains, to reestablish an infrastructure for the flourishing of the people and the spread of the gospel, to rebuild a thriving network of churches and schools and church leaders, And then in 2021, some of you might remember there was a pandemic, um, and we endured a pandemic and so many personal and corporate sufferings. And during that time, we raised about $3 million toward the purchase and the renovation of the Carter Bank building. And over all of these years, God has been so kind to us. So often with our church, there's a story Jesus tells about the the farmer goes out and plants seed and some lands here and there and, and some of it produces like all of this fruit. Over the years, over and over, whatever we've done for God, it's like, boom, this super fruitful experience. All along, from the very beginning, we've had a clear sense of our fundamental identity. We are a Christian church. We're not just an organization. We're a Christian church, and we are here for God's glory and the good of this city. That's been the mission that's animated us and energized us and driven us all along. And what I want to do in the sermon this morning is show you one way that we see this vision of a church in Scripture, this kind of twofold vision, this vertical vision. Churches have to exist for God's glory. And then this horizontal movement that we have to exist in concrete and practical ways for the flourishing of the actual city we live in. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Titus, this very hard-to-find book, um, Titus chapter Three, verses 3 through 8, our New Testament reading. And what I want us to see is that it's, this vision wasn't some clever thing that anybody in our church created. 
This is the vision scripture gives for churches. They have to exist in two dimensions, in Christ and in their city. And you have to hold these two things together. In other words, for a church to take God seriously, they have to take their city seriously. And if a church wants to take its city seriously, God is our best ally. So Titus chapter 3, let me show you in all three of these passages we heard read this morning how this works out, in, or we get this from Scripture. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. We ourselves were once foolish. Now this is Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing to one of his friends who's a pastor, outing his friend and himself. Hey dude, remember you and I, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So the apostle Paul is writing to his friend and he's, he's describing what he and his friend were like before they were converted. It's interesting. Paul was zealous for the flourishing of cities, but his zeal for justice drove him to hatred for those who didn't see things his way, for those who harmed him for those who violated his ethic. And he was owned by hatred. It is so easy to be owned by hatred when you're working for good. It sneaks in, you get disappointed, you get frustrated, and it owns you. And Paul was one of these guys living his life to try to affect good, but passions and devotion and zeal dominated him, and he was passing his days as a social justice warrior filled with malice and envy, hated by others and hating, hating others. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Now, you don't have to be religious. Don't interpret that word saved religiously. Saved him from what? All that stuff that was owning him. Righteous zeal turning into resentment when others failed him, when they violated his views. All of this hatred, all of these passions that were enslaving him, God saved him and his friend from that. Not because of works done by righteousness. We didn't get saved because we worked, did good works, because we were laboring for the good of our city. No, but according to God's own mercy. So before Paul was saved, he was in a bad place. He needed to be saved, to be rescued from, from his condition. And God did that. God rescued Paul from his arrogance have you ever noticed people deeply concerned for justice can be some of the most judgmental people? God saved him from his arrogance and foolishness and God did it out of mercy, out of love. And then notice verse five. God did this by the washing of regeneration. Now, if you write in your Bible or your friend's Bible, you write, underline that word, Regeneration by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, what's important to see here is that God's salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit through rebirth. That word regeneration can be translated rebirth. Think of the word generate, regenerate. It's the same word used in other places in the Bible, translated rebirth. So, so Paul was so enslaved that God had to do a, a miracle. He had to totally rebirth Paul. Now, 
What we need to see is that the salvation we all need is so important. It's so huge. It requires something supernatural. We can't dig our way out of our slavery to hatred and malice and all these passions. In John chapter three, you don't have to turn there. Jesus made the same point when he was talking to Nicodemus who was saying, man, how am I gonna be saved? How am I gonna be rescued from all of this junk? And Jesus said to Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again, reborn. Okay, now with that in mind, turn to our gospel passage, Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, this passage that Deacon Martin read to us earlier, here is Jesus interacting with somebody else who's like, man, I need to be saved. I, it was this, this rich guy, this rich young, this guy who had succeeded in so many places in life. There's a lot of ways to be lost. One is down and out. Another is super successful. You, you figured out how to work the rules of your society. You figured out college. You figured out success. You figured all that out. But inside, you still know. You are doomed, you are damned, you are enslaved. This guy comes up to Jesus and says, look, on the outside, I got it all together, but I need, I need to be saved. How am I gonna be saved? And then Jesus talks to him, basically, you've gotta be born again. And um, he, he's, there's no way he could do it. So he walks off, he's frustrated. He, he he's just can't make this happen. And the disciples look at Jesus and they're like, holy cow, rabbi, or however they spoke in Greek. Um, if that guy who is so good at, at disciplining himself and navigating life, if somebody's so good at it, can't get saved, then everybody's to be doomed. And Jesus said, yep, you're right. It's impossible. But here's the catch. What's impossible for humans is possible for God. So he makes the point. Salvation has to be supernatural. It has to be from God. And then as Jesus and the disciples are talking about this, Jesus does a very interesting thing. In verse 28, he pivots. He pivots from talking about individuals being saved and notice what Jesus does. He said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world. Now many of you, if you're following along in your Bible, there's a footnote next to that phrase. And at the bottom of the page or somewhere, it tells you another translation. Has anybody found it? What's the other translation? In the regeneration. It's the same word in the Titus passage. Paleogenesis in Greek. It's the same word. So what I want you to see here is that Jesus goes from talking about how doomed we are and we need God, our maker, to save us he shifts and he uses the same language, the language of rebirth, and he talks about the whole creation needing rebirth. In the new world, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so what we see in these two passages is that Jesus himself cannot talk about your relationship with God with also, without also including the world's needs. And that every bit as much you and I need a supernatural act of salvation, the world is doomed. The world, every square inch. Politics doesn't always get it right. Some of you didn't know that. Um, governments, 
don't always get it right. And sometimes the best politicians and the best governments try and make a mess of things. And sometimes they're overwhelmed with spirits of hatred and malice. And as we sit in judgment on Russia for its hatred and malice, we're struck that we also too are driven by these kind of passions. And all, you, all we're seeing in government is just take a bunch of people and all of us and how these forces that can shape our lives can shape governments too. And art is broken and education is broken and healthcare and business and every square inch of this world and all of the spheres of society, they are all broken and enslaved just like humans. And Jesus, is his life is about the regeneration of humans and culture. And he brings these two things together. This is why our church exists for the glory of God and the good of the city. Because the vision Jesus gave us is a holistic vision. It's a vision not just of you, but of you and healthcare. You and nature, you and whatever field you work in. Jesus died to deliver you, to save you, and to save labor, homemaking, banking, all of these things. And it's all over the Bible that they're put together. Being born again, being saved is the way you enter the kingdom. But the kingdom is about far more than your conversion. The kingdom is about God's work in Jesus to recover his purposes for all of creation, humans and science. And all of these things that we take part of when we, when we leave this building. So being born again, becoming a Christian is a far more significant thing than some people are accustomed to thinking about. To be a Christian is to be born from above. And we need to come to grips with how radical and all-consuming that is. The kingdom of God that he, God births is creation-wide. And that's why we as a church seek God's glory and the city's good. Because if we take God seriously, we are taking the creator seriously. And he takes the creation seriously. So you can't take God seriously and not take a thing seriously that he takes serious. That would be like me taking my wife seriously, but the stuff she cares about, I don't care about. You just can't do that. So this is why we as a church, if we take God seriously, we will take the city seriously. And this is why if we want to take our city seriously, this is why God is our best ally. When the Spirit of God bursts us into his kingdom, we are not only being reconciled to God, we are being restored to the original vocation of humans, which is to be God's agents, God's workers, in God's world. That's the vertical and the horizontal. Now, when churches try to do this, when we've been trying to do this for the past 12 years or so, there are two dangers we're continually trying to resist. Sometimes we're doing better than others, but there are two ditches we've got to stay out of. The first one is when a church is rightly emphasizing the need for people to be converted, but it fails to connect conversion to God's kingdom to God's purposes. It fails to connect conversion to God's commitment to the healing of all of culture and nature. 
This happens when a church is so focused on people getting saved, it gives too little attention to the actual lives those people are living Monday through Friday, to the culture, to the city, to art, politics, government, business, and all the wonderful aspects of life. The second danger, the other ditch, is when a church faces so focuses rightly and emphasizes culture, but it forgets that it is the citizens of God's kingdom who need to be culturally engaged so that no one is, is born a citizen of God's kingdom. They have to be converted. What I'm saying is the first danger is the one that happens when a church emphasizes personal salvation but fails to connect salvation to God's definition of salvation, which is worldwide, culture-wide, everything you put your hand to, you're a part of. The second danger is when a church gets all hopped up on social justice and it has a deep concern for the issues of its city, but it forgets people have to be converted. And these are the two ditches. It's so hard to avoid these. But when a Christian begins to see God's comprehensive vision for every square inch, every domain, every sphere of life, we cannot ever forget that it's about God's kingdom. And therefore, it has to start with us on our knees before God, and we have to return there again and again and again. Now, turn with me to Jeremiah, and let's try to put this together and see it in actual, concrete, lived-out example. Jeremiah, our passage from the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 29. Some background. God's people, the Israelites, have been conquered by Babylon, the wicked, pagan, bloodthirsty Babylonian empire. And Babylon had this strategy. When Babylon conquered a nation, part of their approach to the people they conquered was they wanted to eradicate the religious and political and national identity of the people they conquered. And so what they would do is they would... I just lost the page, the next page of my notes. What's going on? There it is. So what they would do is they would take the professional and the ruling elite of the country they conquered. They would take those people, the kind of culture shapers, and they would deport them out of the country they conquered, and they would deport them and force them to live inside the capital city of Babylon. And what they were wanting to achieve by this is they were wanting to take the thought leaders, the culture shapers, the elite, the influencers, and they wanted to assimilate them so that they would lose their identity and thus they could erase the distinctive identity of the conquered nation. Now, when this happened to Israel and the the ruling elite, when we heard this passage read, they talked about the leaders, they were taken to Babylon, a false prophet, a religious leader rose up by the name of Hananiah. And he told the Israelites that had been deported, these, these influencers, he told them that God was going to bring them back in a miracle to Jerusalem in just a couple of years. And so they should therefore hold the line, refuse to integrate. But God had a different plan. And through the prophet Jeremiah, God said, oh no, you're going to be here a long time. 
And he tells his people in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 6, to increase in number and do not decrease. And part of what he means by that is I do want you to retain your distinctive identity. Don't get washed out. Don't decrease. But he goes on to tell them in verse 5, now, I also want you to settle down and engage in the life of the great city of Babylon. I want you to build homes and plant gardens and most striking of all, he tells them, I want you to serve Babylon, the city. I want you to serve the city. And quote, seek the peace and prosperity of that city and to pray to the Lord for it, not against it. There's a difference when, if I were to say uh, to Jim, Jim, I'm praying for you. It's a different thing than if I say, Jim, I'm praying against you. God did not tell them to pray against the city. He didn't tell them to pray, to work against the city. He said, move into it, engage with it. Pray for its peace, seek its peace, seek its prosperity. Now think about how this helps us understand that this is God's way with his people, that he wants us to exist with distinct identities for his glory. But he also wants us to exist for cities. Why? Because he loves them. Because he cares about even Babylon. Because even Babylon is held within his gaze. And he, and he sends his people all over the world by hook or crook. See, a lot of us think we live where we live by accident or choice. And we need to learn like the Israelites to realize we might live where we live because God brought us there. That behind that job offer or behind that move toward a college or behind the fact that your parents, that behind all of that, God has brought you to a place and he wants you to seek its welfare to work for its flourishing, and to pray for its flourishing. It's, and, and so this is this vision that it's both vertical and it's horizontal. One way to think about this is, is, here's one of my favorite ways of thinking about it. When I look at you on Sunday morning, I, I don't see people who are resources for our church. I think that what you really are is exhausted. And that you are all in full-time missionary service as school teachers, as students, as mental health workers, as businessmen. And that work is hard. That work is at the coal face. And when you go into your vocations, they're not just tiring because work is tiring. They're tiring because it is a spiritual battle. Because as you work to educate well, as you work to figure out how to be a parent well, how to be a good neighbor how to be a good citizen of our city as you're trying to think through what does it mean to engage with this city and to love this city and to work for its good. When you do that for a week, you get your teeth kicked in and it's exhausted. So this, this is the medic tent behind the battle line. And what you're doing all day, every week is the battle. This, this is where we come back on the first day of the week to turn our attention back to our maker, to draw down the forgiveness because it's hard to get it right and to receive his mercy. And it's like the medic tent where he's binding up our wounds and he's reminding us of why we're in this. And he's giving us just enough so that one more week we can be a parent or a child or a student or a worker, whatever we're doing, wherever we are. So we come here on Sunday, this is a missionary convention. 
This is all the missionaries coming in from the front lines. And we're, and we're turning our attention back so that we can draw back in, so that we can see God. My job, the job of a pastor is to stand in the middle of a congregation and over and over, week after week, remind us of what's true. Remind us of the things that it's hard to remember. And to turn our gaze, to coach us, to get us to all look back to the healer, the captain of our souls. The Lord is my shepherd so that he can feed us and lead us beside the still waters of his table and his word. And so then we get back to Monday. And on Monday, tomorrow, we go back out. We go back forward. And this has been the vision that has driven our church and energized our church all along. And here's the key. God has scandalously pegged the flourishing of cities to churches. That's why we plant churches. Because the hope of Stanton is not incarnation. It's a church in Stanton. It's lots of churches in Stanton. The hope of Kieseltown, of East Rockingham, is churches in that place who can take that place seriously. That's why we, the reason we plant churches is because we have a church-centered view of evangelism. The job of the church is to, Paul always referred to churches in two realities, who they were in Christ and who they were in place, to the church of God in Corinth, in Christ. These are the two dominant dimensions that we've got to live faithful lives, and it's hard. And that's why our church is so relentlessly focused on God and on this particular city. I hope, I pray, I desire, and I hope you join me in this, that as we move forward as a church into a new chapter, this building has been so good in helping us do this. There have been so many things we've been able to do in and through this building that are particular to this city. And the churches we planted don't do a lot of the things we do because they're in different communities. And and, and our desire needs to be that in that new building, that we continue to live lives in both dimensions, focused on God and committed to our city. Let's pray.